Church, open your Bibles. We are going to be in Joshua chapter 6 this morning, and we continue in this series in which we're looking at the life of Rahab. She's one of the main characters that's in the uh, front section of the book of Joshua, and we've had a, a good time looking into her life. Well, we all have walls in our lives that are too big to penetrate. By that I mean problems that we face that don't have any really easy solutions to them. The walls may seem too high. The walls may seem too fortified. In our story today that we're going to pick up and read in just a moment, it's a common story. You're going to recognize it right away if you've been in the Bible very much. The walls are 25 feet high around the city of Jericho. That's almost as tall as a telephone pole. And they're 20 feet wide. And these walls, well, they don't seem like that they are very easy to overtake or easy to conquer. In our 21st century lives today, <laughs> we're not really trying to scale ancient city walls. That's not one of our main problems. But we all have problems. They just happen to be more hidden. They're problems that well, they're internal problems that many of us may face. Let me give you a couple of examples. Maybe you or maybe you have a family member or a friend that's struggling with an addiction. That's not easy to overcome. It's not like you can will that to be gone. It's not like a sense of more rage or anger at the person that has that helps you to overcome that. It's, it's, it's got huge walls around it and it takes a lot to be able to overcome that. Those are very stubborn walls. Uh, perhaps you're in the position where you have had a very close relationship and something's happened to that relationship. And it looks like maybe that relationship is even near the end. You don't know what to do with it. You don't know how to repair it. You could if you would. But you don't know what to do with it. And it's a representation again of a massive wall in your life today that you don't know how to handle. In today's story, we're going to learn something that's important about spiritual victory that God gives. And one of the things we're going to find out today is that spiritual victory also, uh, often calls for a strange obedience. Spiritual victory often calls for a strange obedience. And, and that's what's happening in the passage today. Let me rem remind you that we are in the life of Rahab. We learned about Rahab all the way back in chapter 2. And Rahab is, again an inhabitant of the city of Jericho. And that's the first city that the Israelites are going to come to and conquer on their way across the Jordan River. She has the profession of being a prostitute in that city. Not the person that we would necessarily say, wow, we expect a lot of faith from her, but yep, here she is. And she believes that actually the Hebrew God is big and powerful and is going to allow the army to overtake the city and indeed all of the land of Canaan. And so she has tremendous faith in this God of the Hebrews and says to them, I think your God's going to win. And in fact, I'm willing to do something for you. I'm going to take you spies that have come to look at the land and you've been found out. The king knows you're here. I'll hide you. But then in my kindness, I'm asking you to give a kindness to me. Would you save me and my family when the Israelite army comes into, into Jericho? And they say, you know what? Yes, we will. And so they make that 
trade with her and she is on the edge now of, of her seat waiting for them to come into her city. We're on the eve of the army's assault of Jericho. How would they do it? Well, would they build siege ramps? That was an ancient tactic in which you'd build a ramp that made its way up to the wall so you could scale over it. W would they maybe uh, starve the city out? Would they shoot a hail of arrows over the walls? Would they try to burn something? Well, all of those were very common uh, tactics for warfare, but those would be ones that God is not going to order up at all. God orders up not something that's conventional at all, but something that, well, looks strange on the surface. We're like, wow, I didn't see that one coming. God's calling the Israelites to do something that's going to even test their faith as he requires them to do this uh, as they assault the city of Jericho. Let's go ahead and read. We'll find out how this story unfolds. I'm in Joshua chapter 6, and I'm starting in verse 1. This is the way it is recorded in the scriptures for us. Now Jericho is shut up inside and out, uh, outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city uh, till the men of war go around it, the city once, uh, then thus shall thus for the six days uh, seven priests shall uh, shall blow. Wow, man, I'm, I'm having trouble with this. Where am I? Where's my light here? <laughs> All right, I think I found it. Seven priests shall bear uh, seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow their trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall uh, shout with shall with a one voice shout, and the wall of the city uh, will fall down flat, and the people shall uh, go up, everyone straight in before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the Lord went forward blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets and the rear guard was walking around the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall, you, uh, not sh neither shall a word go out from your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So, before the, so he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once and then came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the ark of the Lord uh, went on and they blew the trumpets continually. And the men arrived, were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the, se the second day, they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did this for six days. 
On the seventh day they rose, uh, uh, on the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city and the, the same manner seven times. It was the only day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you this day. And the city and all the men and within it uh, were devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in the house shall live because she hid the, me uh, the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction but, who, but whom you have de devoted things. Take only the, the devoted, take none of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bearing trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord and you shall, it shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As, seen, uh, as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. And so the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and the, they, they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, sheep, donkeys, uh, were, were at the edge of the sword. But to the men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out among, uh, of the women and all who are also in her house as you swore to her that you would do. So the men who went in, uh, who had spied out the land and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who were belonged to her and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. All right. I can read better next time, I promise. Wow, that was a little rough for me. We changed a little lighting. I think I'm going to work on that a little bit. Joshua... Uh, came to Jericho, which was an ancient city in, uh, obviously, Israel. It was a middle-sized, fortified city. In fact, I've been to that city. It's about eight and a half acres uh, in, in, in breadth. And I've got a picture here of what ancient uh, Jericho looks like, if you want to give me that one. There it is, the very first one. We were walking up the ruin of Jericho and you can kind of see the size and the breadth of it. Give me the next one. This is kind of the breadth of the, the, the whole tell. It's, a tell is a, a ruin and this is kind of looking across it and you can tell there's not much there today. Not much there at all. You could walk around the circumference of this city in about 20 minutes so it's not a huge city. And modern archaeologists have found a lot of ruined walls on that site. But here's where the disagreement is. They disagree over which of those walls exactly is the wall that came a-tumbling down because, again, it's not very evident. There's been a lot of, uh, the site was burned, the site was can be rebuilt over several times, and a lot of sediment has come onto that spot. So they're really not very sure of that. Of course, this was very common in the story that we are told that, again, there was uh, the story of, uh, of them conquering the city is a common one that we tell uh, over and over again. And, and it should be one that we tell over and over again. And a place where it's told oftentimes is in Sunday school with children. There was a brand new pastor at a church and he decided to visit the Sunday school. He visited a classroom and there was a teacher there. And so uh, she said very you know, confidently, uh, Pastor, we're studying the book of Joshua. And he said, that's wonderful. Let's see what you're learning who 
tore down the walls of Jericho. And there was a little boy that raised his hand and said, Pastor, I didn't do it. <laughs> he was a little flustered. And so he said, all right, let's see what you're learning. Who tore down the walls of Jericho? And the teacher got a little uncomfortable. And she said, Pastor, if Johnny says he did not do it, I trust that he didn't do it. He was a little miffed about that, so he decided to go to the children's director and ask him, you know, what's kind of going on here? Uh, you know, oh, this is what happened. And the children's director said, well, you know, we've had some issues with Johnny at times. I'll, I'll talk with him about that. So he's not getting any headway. So he finally makes his way back to the deacons at this church and he's talking to them about what's happened and there's an older deacon man and he kind of strokes his, his chin as he says, Pastor, I think that what we should do is just take the funds out of the general fund to pay for the walls and just leave it at that. <laughs> walls are come a-tumbling down. Notice from the beginning of this story that we know the outcome. From the very beginning of the story, God tells Joshua, this is what's going to happen and you're going to take the city. It was just a matter of Joshua listening to those plans and giving those plans to the Israelites, the Israelite army, that's going to carry that out. Spiritual victory often requires a very strange obedience. And in this passage today, we're going to learn about that strange obedience. And it comes in three steps. So I want to portray three steps today that are going to help you understand this strange obedience that they're required to give and sometimes we're also required to give. Step one is listening. You'll notice that there are three groups of people that have to listen. Joshua has to listen to God. The people have to listen to Joshua and Rahab and her family have to listen to the spies' orders that were given to her. You remember that we found out from uh, last week that Rahab had three things that she was required to do in order to qualify to be saved. One of them was to hang that red cord out of her window identifying her home so that when the army came, they knew where to find her. Another one was to get all of her family into that home. Anybody who wasn't in that home would not be spared. And so she had to get all of her family into that space and keep them there. And then also she had to keep the spies a secret, which she did and she practiced. The nation of Israel also had a responsibility. They were ones that had to listen to what Joshua said. And you know, I've in the past gotten in my mind that the entire nation of Israel marched around the outside of the city. You know that's not what the text says. The text says the only people that marched around the outside of the city was the army, or a portion at least of the army, uh, some priests and the trumpet blowers. That was the three groups that were around the city. The men, the women, the uh, elderly, they were all back at home in the camp and they didn't participate in this. It was just that smaller group of people and again, there is, if you want to call it a battle plan, that was their battle plan. But really it was more of a marching plan. I mean, that's what it really was. And so again, let, let me go ahead and see if I can give you some, 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 uh, a visual here and some description of the way that they marched around the city because I think this is important. I've got a little drawing here of the way that they marched and the order in which they marched. They talk about the trumpet blowers, seven of them that are blowing a ram's horn. And again, it's probably accurately depicted there as a shofar. So it made that long wailing sound. Do, 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 do. And so they were to continually blow that. You've got a detachment of soldiers that's on the front end of that. And then right behind the trumpet blowers is men that are carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. 
I've got another picture for that if you give me the next one. This is what the ark looked like carried by the priests. And it's a box that's covered in gold. It's got some seraphim on the top of it. So are winged creatures. Inside the Ark of the Covenant is remnants of the Ten Commandments and Aaron's budding staff, which was a miracle staff. And again, Aaron is the first uh, priest of the nation of Israel. And so his budding staff is on the inside of that. They were carrying that ark in order to depict God's presence with them. And so again, they make their way around the city with, the, again, representing the presence of God with the army. Go back one more picture and let me just show you the previous one. Just go back one, there we go. And then you'll notice behind the ark was also another army detachment. So four groups and they march around the city in that order and that is what they are required to do. Uh, but it was not just the army that had to listen. Rahab's family had to listen. And you can imagine that they probably <laughs> said, you know, did we hear this right after day one? Day one, the army walks around, they blow the trumpets, and it's like, did, did we hear this right? Because, you know, not much really happened here. But a strange obedience often calls for uh, listening to be one of the very first steps. God may have some words of special instruction to you from his from his word or from uh, maybe a nudging from the Holy Spirit. Jericho is this place where it's going to require a special tactic in order to take it. And many times again, this is uh, something God's going to do with you. He's going to say, I'm going to do something with you that I haven't done previously. Uh, let's face it, it's a war strategy that, Jer that Joshua never would have dreamt up. It's a war plan that his lieutenants would not have advised him to do. And guess what? It's a plan that's never used again. So they march throughout all of Canaan. There's not another fortified city they ever go to and they do the same thing. So this is kind of a one-off and God says, this is my plan for you today. A strange obedience often calls for listening carefully to what is transpiring. Let me tell you about a little young man. His name is Anson Hui. I've got a picture of him for you. Uh, I don't know how old he is today, but at the time of the story, he was 11 years old. At the age of three, he was diagnosed with glycogen storage disease, meaning that his body is unable to store sugars or break down sugars. And so he required frequent daytime feedings. He drank raw cornstarch. That was part of his diet during the day. And nighttime feedings through a pump that was surgically placed inside of his stomach. At age five, he experienced developmental delays that doctors feared would cause autism in him. And at that point in his life, he couldn't speak sentences more than three syllables, and he became a target for school bullies. It's no wonder that Anson said, God, why have you placed me here? However, Anson also discovered during that time a gift. He said, while everybody else was busy talking, I listened and listened and listened to the sounds that people were saying. He listened and developed actually a gift through that listening. He has perfect pitch because he's able to hear sounds so well. Anson, Anson discovered that he could memorize masterful complex music uh, like for instance Mozart's Concerto in D with astounding speed and proficiency. Anson has won numerous awards. He's even performed at Carnegie Hall. 
Anson's trials and his gifts have led him to declare his faith in God. And he says, I can't decide many things about what God's plan to do, but I can choose about the work I'm working on because I still have workable hands and a body to do it with. I believe every single life is unique and special. Each of us has a special mission and a purpose. Well said, Anson. And all because, again, he had to listen for so long that this was developed on the inside of him. Listening is difficult work. It does not come natural. It's always easier to talk than to listen. And in fact, to take this little simple test. The next time you're in a, a longer conversation, step away from that conversation and say, how long did I speak? This person that wrote this says, uh, no, you're already underestimating because you love to talk inherently more than you love to listen. He says, uh, talking is drinking, like drinking a fine Cabernet. Listening is like doing squats. Listening is reading a corporate report. Talking is eating a Cinnabon. We all love to talk more than we do to listen, but a strange obedience often calls for listening first. All right. The second step in a strange obedience is waiting. The first group that had to wait was the marching group. They had to march around the city for a day and then go home and wait. And they had to wait in the campground for the next day to come and then go do it again and then wait. And they just, again, had this strange instruction, blow the ram's horns, but don't utter a word. Complete silence. And so again, that was something that they had to wait on to see what God was doing. But you know, that's not the only group that had to wait. Rahab's house had to wait. And they had to wait not one day, but seven days. And you can already hear those individuals in Rahab's house. And they're saying, Rahab, are you sure you heard this right? Because not much is happening. You got guys marching around the city and blowing horns, but they're not invading the city. And you can imagine them beginning to say, have we trusted rightly here? I mean, those walls look pretty stout. I'm not sure they can get through them. And maybe we should obey our own king and not, you know, this other foreign king we don't even know about yet. So what are we doing? And so I can imagine the pressure is just building on the inside of Rahab's house as they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And it just doesn't seem like anything's going to occur here. But waiting was an important part of the entire war strategy because it was building something special inside of Israel. Something that couldn't be built any other way. And God's on the edge of his seat saying, okay, I'm giving you this job. Are you going to fulfill it? It looks strange to you, but are you going to do it? And waiting would be something that would be very important and something, again, that, well, I'd say we all struggle with because we live in an instant society. We have, you know, instant food, instant delivery, instant downloads, and so waiting is not something that we do inherently well. I've got a story from the New York Times and uh, it, it spoke about executives at the Houston airport. And the executives at the Houston airport faced an interesting problem. They had a cascade of complaints about long waits at the baggage claim area. Have you ever waited long for a baggage claim? Come on. We all have, right? And it's no fun. Well, they had all these complaints. They said, well, we're going to do something about that. So they said, we'll hire more baggage handlers and they diminished the time of waiting to eight minutes, way below the industry average. And the complaints kept still rolling in. And they're like, you know, hey, we can, I'm not sure we can do any better than this. Eight minutes is short. So they began to investigate the problem more and more. And here's what they found out. 
They found out that it took one minute to walk from the gate to the, to the carousel where your bags come off. And so that meant that you walked one minute and then you went and watched for seven. And so they said, well, we're going to take a little different approach on this. And so they moved the gate further away from the carousel <laughs> so that now the time to walk, oftentimes by the time you got to the carousel, your bags were there. No more complaints. <laughs> they spoke to Richard Larson in this article who is a leading expert on the psychology of queuing. And this is what he said. He said, the length of our wait is not as important as what we're doing while we wait. Often the psychology of queuing is more important than the statistics of the wait itself. Essentially, we tolerate occupied time. Occupied time is when we're doing something. I would put up with a long walk from the gate to the carousel, but I don't do well, he says, with unoccupied time, which is standing waiting for the carousel to go. That's called unoccupied time. Give us something to do while we wait, and the wait becomes endurable. That's why so often, waiting on God feels like unoccupied time to us. We, we wait, but we wonder what's really happening behind the scenes. Is God really doing anything at all? Waiting on God implies developing a new perspective on what God is doing while we wait on Him. Isn't that an interesting idea? That if you perceive that nothing's really happening, you perceive you're not doing anything, waiting's really tough. But if you're doing something in the midst of waiting, then suddenly there's new perspective on that. And I wonder how that maybe adds to our equation. You're in a time right now, you're trying to solve a big issue. It's not happening quickly. What's happening on in, the inside of you and those around you while that waiting is happening? That's a, a critical part of a spiritual growth and spiritual victory. And it's something that uh, a quick solution oftentimes can't get to is what's happening in the process of the waiting. All right, there's one more step in this process of spiritual victory that requires a very strange obedience. And the last one is responding. At the appropriate time, everybody has to respond. People have to act. On the seventh day, after marching around the city seven times, they blew the long blow on the shofar so everybody could hear. And at that moment, everybody was required to shout and the walls came down. You know the story here from the children's song. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls came a-tumbling down. Fit the battle. I mean, I always thought that was a very interesting word. It's probably meant to be fought, right? But, you know, it's a little misleading, because honestly, all he did was march and shout. He really didn't do much fitting at all. And so again, that's what's happening as they're responding is the walls are coming crumbling down and they're taking some action with that. It's not really clear how the walls crumbled. Was it an earthquake or did God just speak it into being? Uh, oh, this is what we do know, that there was a chaotic, a chaotic environment that was created and the Israelite army was able to take the city very easily. And of course, Rahab's entire household was spared uh, death and destruction, but they also had to respond. The army had to respond with a shout. Rahab had to respond by being obedient and responding by saying, we will go with you spies as we recognize you and we'll make our way out of the city with all the reign of destruction all around us. 
And they were ushered safely again to the edge of the Israelite camp. There comes a point of obedience in which we must take action. For the Israelites, it was the shout. For Rahab, it was following the spies. All of us have a time in which we're called to act. Perhaps it's preceded by a time of listening or waiting. But then action must be taken. I'm going to use a little bit of a controversial story that recently happened. And I realize there's been a lot of press about this, but here goes, Uvalde, Texas. Uh, there's a shooter that comes onto the campus just this past school year. And he shows up and began shooting up teachers and children. And he barricades himself inside of a classroom. There's more than 400 officers on the site, with, representing more than 24 agencies. And with all the training, with all of the background, with all of the firepower... Nobody acts. It takes a small tactical team from the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency that, by the way, wasn't even talking to local command. They were talking to some, somebody in, in Washington with federal authority, and that's what the moment they knew we've got to go in, and they went in and in a matter of moments took the, the shooter down. I say that because there comes a time in which you have to act. There comes a time in which it's like, this is what we are required to do. And we've got to appropriately respond to the situation that is right in front of us. Maybe you need to make that call today in the process of forgiving somebody. You've waited. Perhaps you've even listened to God. And now he's nudged you forward and he said, you know what, make that call. Write that letter. Send that email. It's time. Maybe you need, are in the process of, of, uh, of recognizing a sin that you ha has been with you for too long and you've lamented over that and you've, you've longed for it to be away. But it just keeps persisting and it's time to take some action. Maybe that action is a big step of actually telling somebody else about that. Maybe even a counselor in order to help you with abilities that are beyond your own. There comes a time for a response, a time for action. Spiritual victory often calls for a strange obedience. I'm wondering what the spiritual victory is that you are looking for right now. Is it in your family? Is it in a friend? Is it in your own life? Is it somehow within the church or a group that you're a part of? What is that big thing in which you're looking for a spiritual breakthrough, a spiritual victory? And what are the massive walls that confront you? They look way too big. And you just look too puny in comparison to the massiveness of that wall. If your problem is way big, there's chances are pretty good that you've tried something and maybe it hasn't solved things. And so God's calling you, slow down and take three steps. Start by listening. Listen. Listen to the word. Listen to the nudging of the spirit. Listen to perhaps some individuals around you. Wait. There's something being accomplished in waiting even if that seems like there isn't. And so take that for granted that God is saying I'm working something out here but it's just going to require a little bit of time. And then finally respond. Respond with confidence once you know the step to take and step out and take that action for the glory of God. Father, thank you again for uh, Rahab's life and Rahab's obedience and the obedience that we see in the story today from Joshua and all the people that were coming into the land. We see that even though things look very strange, who would come up with such a strategy? They said, yes, God will do it. 
And we know you're in it and we know that the victory is already planned and is already yours and, and therefore ours. Lord, I know in a room this size that we've got some very big walls. There's people right now that are saying, oh, I was so easy to identify exactly what the spiritual wall is that I need to overcome. And I'm praying for those individuals right now, Lord. Would you speak to them well? Let them listen well. Would they wait patiently as you're working something out and that the day of action, the day they're called to shout, may they shout for your glory in whatever step you call them to take. Thank you again for the clarity of your word, the goodness of your word, the faithfulness of your word. You carry out what you say you will. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.